Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Feel free to connect up with us in our conversation through social media. You can also tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty, let's get to it. We are celebrating Halloween in kind of a quirky way around here. Um, we're talking about the masks that we wear, the um, shadow self, the shadow sides of our nature that reside within each and every one of us that may actually be spooky at times. Certainly if we don't scare ourselves, we might scare others with our behaviors. And I want to just make a point that around here at Harvesting Happiness, normal is highly overrated and happiness is a prized gift. And our first guest we are speaking with today is twisting on Halloween with us with the idea of this mask of mental health and the things that we do to oftentimes mask when we are in need of support, treatment, and greater care. Ross Sabo is the CEO of the Human Power Project, a company that creates cutting-edge mental health curriculum for people of all ages. He's an award-winning speaker, co-author of Behind Happy Faces, Taking Charge of Your Mental Health, and, and he is a social pioneer. Ross has spoken to over one million people about his personal experiences with bipolar disorder and reached millions more in media appearances. He's received several awards, um, including the D.D. Hirsch Removing the Stigma Leadership Award, 
the 2012 Changing Minds Award and is featured in Scientific American Psychology textbook and had his advocacy work entered in the record of Congress. Welcome, Ross. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. I love this topic. I mean, I love talking about mental illness, and I say that really with a chuckle because the, the perspective I come from is uh, psychosocial well-being. So we're talking mm-hmm. about the things that we do as human beings to disguise ourselves when we are in need, when we are in pain, and when we are suffering emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, the work that you do in your own experience with this, because I can certainly go off on mine, but this is about <laughs> you. <laughs> I think I think the biggest thing I try to do in all my work is normalize the concept of mental health instead of isolate mental illness. I think so many times when people hear the words mental health, they think of the worst case scenario. They think of diagnoses of mental illness. They think of school shooting. And I think the most important thing I do is try to make mental health approachable and help people understand that mental health is as important as physical health, that our brains are a part of our body and that, you know, what we put in our bodies, what we do with our thoughts and our emotions really matter. Exactly. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly because the aspect that we're looking at is total wellness, total well-being, total health. And you can't have a fully functioning body without having a well-operating mind. So this is really key to our optimal performance, having a happy life, having uh, optimal lifestyle and well-being includes this mental health element that is so much a part of our our daily operating system. Yeah, and a lot of people overlook it. They're either afraid of it or they don't have the right information. And, And I think a big problem is we don't teach mental health in schools. You know, you get inundated with physical health from day one. We don't teach a single lesson about mental health, and then we're shocked when adults are having these horrible uh, consequences or when you have these college-age students carrying out these mass murders. But, you know, mental health needs to be taught to people. It can't just be taken for granted or assume that people know what it is. Let's talk about the most commonly used masks that we use as humans to hide our mental distress. I think, the, I think one of the most common masks really is a happy space. It really is a, I'm okay, everything's fine. And I think people do that in a, part, a lot of reasons. I think they're embarrassed. I think they're scared. I think they're ashamed. Um, sometimes people don't want to burden other people. Sometimes people don't have someone they can trust. And so we just kind of go through our everyday motions trying to make everyone think everything's okay when, when it really may not be. That's a very good point. And we're, we're taught that it's not okay to be not okay. I mean, that's what I, my own experience when I was a young person was that being sad or being depressed would, would garner a response like, what do you have to be depressed about? What do you have to be sad about? You're a kid. And, and even in today's day and age, it's not even that it's not okay to, to not be okay. It's, you can have these dramatic moments. We see them play out on reality TV or whatever our favorite shows are, but you're expected to get over it quickly. You know, it's like, okay, I get it. You're suicidal. Well, everybody has a problem, so, you know, get over it in a week or in a month. And so 
even in the times where people aren't wearing a mask, where they are expressing themselves, they're expected to, to get over it quickly uh, for, for whatever reason. And, and it's a really dangerous combination. Agreed. And, and let's talk for a moment about depression and suicidal ideation and then taking it you know, to the extreme when somebody does decide that the only way out for them is to end their lives. This is not really um, talked about in schools. We're not, we're not given the tools as young people to understand the signs of depression, to understand that when we do have these thoughts, we will think, oh my, that's just me being crazy and not want to present ourselves to somebody to get the help that we need. So it's important in the work that you're doing, certainly getting that word out there, that it's not shameful. It's essential to get help. Yeah, this, the suicide rate in high school students is the third leading cause of death, and in college students is the second leading cause of death. But you take it outside of college, and suicide is killing 40,000 people in this country a year. Uh, it's more than a lot of other health risks. And I think that when people know the signs, they, they will look out for it, and they will try to, to make a difference. Um, it's really scary, you know, the suicide rate has gone up 18% in males between the ages of 35 and 55 in just the last few years. Um, so it's not just something that's affecting young people. And as I travel around the country, I find that most people really do care about it. They just don't know what to do. And, you know, providing that education is vital in, in making a difference with this issue. Let's go back to the statistic that you just quoted about um, middle-aged males, uh, older Mm -hmm. adult or middle-aged males, because that is a huge increase. Is that attributed to many of the returning troops that are coming home from war, which that is a staggering demographic that is suicides one one an hour? It's actually not. They actually keep that statistic separate. What they're finding with middle-aged men is that they don't keep – as close of acquaintance or friendship groups as uh, women do. And so they're more prone to isolation. They're more prone to cutting themselves off and withdrawing and just going through the motions. They're also finding that, uh, you know, women traditionally, especially in younger ages, often make more attempts to take their own lives, but men have more uh, completions of suicide because they use more violent measures. And so... It's a couple of factors. Men aren't at risk for depression. They aren't seeking help as frequently as women are. And they're also, you know, more prone to withdrawal and isolation. And so those factors together are what has led to uh, this increase. In addition to suicidal ideation and suicide, which are obvious um, uh, demonstrations of there being some mental challenges, I mean, I don't even know if using illness is the right word to use to help people get help. In other words, by saying that they're ill rather than not challenged or struggling may be part of the problem. It may be stigmatizing the situation when, in fact, we have peaks and valleys in our emotional health as we do in our physical health throughout our lifetime. Yeah, and I think words really do matter. And, you know, I I tend to use the words mental health disorder, um, much like you would say, you know, you have some kind of physical uh, health disorder, whether it's diabetes or or something like that. Um, You know, some people like the word brain-based behavioral disorders, trying to call it a behavior. Um, I think the the term mental illness can be a, a difficult 
uh, term for people to understand how there's a, a way past that. And I also think that um, it's important to use words that people are familiar with. Like if I just went out and started talking about brain-based behavioral disorders, some people could say, well, is that mental illness? And then you're like, well, yes, but you, I want you to think about it this way. So that's the challenge for mental health advocates is what words do we use and, and what vernacular are people familiar with enough that we can meet them where they are. Very well said. We are going to go to a break for a minute. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation and the work that you are doing at the Human Power Project because you are actually creating curriculum that addresses this curriculum that's used in schools. You're writing books. You are getting the word out um, about the necessity for addressing. I'm going to go to the bright side. You know, being an applied positive psychology coach, I'm going to look at being proactive about bolstering um, mental health and well-being. I think that for me, when I look at it from that perspective, I'm not stigmatizing. I'm not going to the dark side. I'm going to an optimistic place where there's room for improvement for everyone. Yes, sounds great. Um, and to learn more about Ross Sabo and his work, you can go to humanpowerproject.com. Once again, that's humanpowerproject.com. On Facebook, it's Ross dot sabo and that's s-z-a-b-o and on twitter it is also ross e sabo here come the tunes and we will be right back i wanted to make a difference i wanted to fight we know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. 
welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are making a twist on a Halloween celebration here. We are talking about creating better awareness for mental health and well-being by learning to remove the masks, to step in and deal or dance with the shadow sides of our nature. And my guest today is Ross Sabo. He is the CEO of the Human Power Project, a company that creates cutting-edge mental health curriculum for people of all ages. He's an author, a speaker. He is in the trenches uh, shining a new light, and I dare say a happier light, on serving areas of mental awareness and well-being. Ross, let's talk specifically about the curriculum that you've created. Okay. So the curriculum is called Behind Happy Faces, which was the title of my book. And the idea behind this curriculum was there are a lot of educational campaigns out there focusing on mental illness. And specifically, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, but there aren't a lot of curriculums out there that focus on getting people comfortable with the idea of mental health. And so, what I've seen happening was we were leaving with these messages of this is depression, this is bipolar disorder, this is schizophrenia, and you know people should seek help for it. And so, the message that was hitting people was, okay, so if I have a mental illness, I need help, but if I don't, I'm fine. And then in turn, they were waiting until they were symptomatic with a mental illness to seek help. That's not preventative or proactive. So uh, we wanted I wanted to create this curriculum to be more preventative and teach people about the stigma, about what they think about mental health and give them a clear definition, give them a better vocabulary to address their mental health and understand that while there is a difference between someone who's stressed out and someone who has depression, your goal should be to lead a balanced life and then to give them information on how to change ineffective coping mechanisms and how to help a friend. So this first curriculum is just four lessons, but now I'm working with corporations to uh, develop e-learning modules for employees, which will be uh, much more in-depth and and longer lessons. However, the themes will be the same. And when you talk about coping mechanisms, are you speaking of teaching hardiness, resiliency, grittiness, how to bounce back from um, challenges that occur in life? So the kinds of tools that you would find in any kind of applied psychology programming, is this what you're speaking of? Yeah, and, and I think the first step in that is just to help people better understand what coping mechanisms are because it's not clear. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand that when they come home and uh, have a few drinks and zone out and watch TV that they're coping. Sometimes people just think that's behavior. So the first step is teaching people what coping is and then going into the steps you talked about and helping them understand Um, You know, what is effective and ineffective coping? What role does self-compassion play, like our inner voice play in how we cope? And how can we become more resilient? How can we um, become better prepared to to address the challenges in our lives? And we can only cope with tools that we know. And most of us are not taught the tools early on in life of one of the most beautiful tools that I know you talk about self-compassion. Um, and you know, right. that, along with that goes, you know, you know, forgiveness and um, uh, making a commitment to reduce judgment in our lives, things like that. But the coping mechanisms that you're talking about that the average person experiences in managing their stress and anxiety and sadness is to self-medicate in one form or another, whether it's alcohol, 
alcohol or drugs or over-the-counter medicine or food or gambling or shopping or sex. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Those are coping mechanisms. Yeah, de- definitely. And, and like I said, a lot of people aren't aware of it. And um, it's important to help them become aware of it before you go into talking about how they can change it. You need a baseline to begin from. And, you know, when you talk about mental illness, the, the coping mechanisms you just discussed can be, you know, prevalent in everybody. But when you talk about mental illness, it becomes a little bit more dangerous because the coping can become such a big part of the actual disorder. And uh, it gets a little trickier, which is why you want to approach uh, giving people a vocabulary for their mental health before you even go into discussing coping mechanisms. Well, it didn't start out that way, though. I mean, you know, people aren't aren't born into addiction and these sort of extreme mm-hmm. kinds of behaviors that one would define as mental illness. There's a progression. You know, there's the there's mm-hmm. the, the gate the gateway situation, whatever that is, the gateway substance or drug, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a pharmaceutical substance. And then it progresses as life becomes more challenging, and those other coping tools are not presented. That's when we run into trouble. It's and so and, I, sorry, go ahead. And, no. and and the longer you use a coping mechanism, the harder it is to change it. So you know, a big part of my curriculum focuses on teaching people about the role of neural pathways in coping. You know, any behavior that you repeat for a certain amount of time, you become an expert at. And unfortunately, like for someone like me who binge drank to shut my mind down because of my mind racing thoughts with bipolar disorder, the more I did that, the more automatic it became and the harder it was to change it. And, and, and you mentioned uh, you had uh, bipolar disorder and psychotic features at a very young age. Well, not mm-hmm. that young, but 17, a, a late teenager. And yeah. I mean, you, ha- you have a history. You are, you are walking your talk. You are somebody who has successfully um, managed himself through understanding and knowledge. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out, uh, you know, there are severe mental illnesses that are harder to manage. You know, we like to say that 80 to 90% of people who seek help for a mental illness can see improvement in their symptoms. I do always want to stress that there are 5 to 10% of people that no matter what you do or try or give, it, it's much harder for them to find a, a treatment. Um, for me, I was in denial for a good five years from the time I was diagnosed at 16 until I was about 21. And I went through extreme episodes of mania where I went to sleep for four or five days in a row and um, extreme periods of depression where I tried to kill myself and was hospitalized for it. And uh, I also had psychotic features of constant hallucinations and delusions. Um, and to, to shut it all down, I just drank. I drank as much as I could. I drank a case of beer and passed out, drank a bottle of vodka and passed out. I really didn't know another way to to calm the, the thoughts running through my mind that were so uncontrollable. Were you taking uh, prescribed medication as well? Or you had refused I was. To? I was. But, you know, when you are taking any kind of medication and drinking as much as I was drinking, it didn't matter. It's not, it's not going to have an effect. Um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're using any other kind of drug with uh, psychiatric meds, they're not going to work. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until 21 when I, when I had another near-death experience 
and realize like, wow, you're going to, you're going to continue this and you're going to die or you're going to have to make a change. When I accepted that I had bipolar disorder, that I actually started seeking out treatments that uh, were more effective in, in helping me. You mentioned uh, something that is really important to, uh, I think, touch upon or highlight a little bit further. It is the acceptance of a diagnostic code. And I work a lot with young people in addiction and trauma recovery, a lot, every single day I see dozens and dozens of young people. And this is one of the sticking points for many of them is digesting when they get the diagnostic code. And the challenge Uh becomes seeing the diagnostic code as a way to categorize um, their symptoms and features, but not the essence of who we are as people. And that, I think, is critical in beginning to work with this diagnosis and get treatment and create a, a successful treatment plan that is so much more than just what's in a pill jar. It is. And, you know, the biggest challenge for me, you talk about math, uh, I really, really dealt with uh, a heavy amount of self-hatred. And and part of the biggest reason I didn't accept my diagnosis was I hated myself so much that I just didn't even care what the diagnosis was. I didn't care if it was bipolar disorder. I didn't care if it was, um, you know, anything. I did not care enough about myself to even want to try and make a difference. And a lot of times in a clinical setting, people tend to focus so much on someone's symptoms of a problem that they forget that there's a person in there. And it it would have been much more productive to ask me how I felt about going through all those modes than it would have been moods, than it would have been to constantly ask me if I was manic, depressed, psychotic, or angry. And I think you you make a very good point, that it's about how the individual is feeling. And if we're dealing with thoughts, feelings, emotions, actions, intentions, and creating a life that is healthy and proactive, sometimes that's where the focus needs to reside, which then begins Mm -hmm. to minimize the symptoms that are being experienced because the uh, attention is placed in the right direction. That doesn't mean that we don't get treatment, we don't get medication if it's warranted, but we just um, create an overall plan for well-being that hits, you know, the mind, the body, and the emotions, which goes back to lifestyle that you spoke of when we first started our conversation. Absolutely. And, and, and those things can't be stressed enough. And, 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 and they also tie in to what we were talking about earlier as coping mechanisms, as ways to, to balance our lives. And, you, you know, you make the analogy of coming home and having beers and sitting on the couch. That is a coping mechanism. Going to the gym is also a coping mechanism, and which will end up yielding a better result for us. Well, I think it's always important to uh, keep in mind that line between, um, you know, effective and ineffective. I would say that going to the gym is always going to be more effective for you nine times out of ten, but we also know those people who are at the gym punishing themselves. The, the person with an eating disorder who clearly needs to get off the treadmill, um, you know, the, the other thing. So, yeah, nine times out of ten, exercise is going to be better. We also need to know that difference between effective and ineffective. Yes, and, and, and pay attention to the symptoms of the individual. I mean, we're dealing with, with human mm-hmm. lives, human hearts, human spirits, and I believe that that is a big part of the equation, is really dialing into the individual who oftentimes just needs to be heard. 
that just having the opportunity to really express oneself in a safe environment is the first step, step towards a solution. Absolutely. Some kind of outlet. Uh, you know, so many times, in keeping with this, this Halloween theme, people hide and are so afraid and put on so many different disguises to make everyone think everything's okay. And when they get that first chance, that first outlet to be heard, to be listened to, it's, it's vital. It, it can be life-changing. Ross, we are out of time, and I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, to learn more about Ross Abo, please go to humanpowerproject.com. On Facebook, Ross.Sabo, and that's S-Z-A-B-O. And on Twitter, he is at Ross E. Sabo. And as you go out and celebrate your Halloween wherever you are in the world, take a moment to think about the mask that you may be wearing and the shadow sides of your own nature and see how you might turn the light on yourself and see the reflection that's looking back at you through the eyes of kindness, compassion, and more love for yourself. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it generously. Why? Because we're having a Halloween howl of sorts over here on the radio today. We're talking about the masks of mental illness and maybe even the shadow sides of ourselves. And carrying on the conversation, I am pleased to be in studio with cartoonist Ellen Forney. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo, and Me, as well as the 2012 Genius Award winner in literature from Seattle's The Stranger. I am I'm going to just jump on and, and bring Ellen on because I have so much to speak with her about. Good morning, Ellen. Let's, I'm so happy you're here. I don't even know where to start because you are, you're too cool, actually. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to be here, Lisa. Good morning. Well, let, good morning. Let's talk about marbles. 
Mm-hmm. Because shortly before your 30th birthday, mm-hmm. there was a, 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 a milestone that happened or epiphany or life challenge or mountain to climb. Tell us about it and how it changed your attitudes, your work, your creativity, or maybe it didn't. Well, that was when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so that's when, um, that's when a, a lot of things came into focus and was the beginning of my, I guess, journey um, to figure out how to take care of myself regarding, regarding my disorder and learned a whole lot of other things about, I guess, about life and, and um, my priorities and, and a good life, really. So um, I had been, I had been, um, I had been cycling for a couple of years, like up and down and then, and then in the middle and then, and then really up. And that was right before my 30th birthday when I had the highest high that I've ever had. Um, and that was when I was diagnosed. Uh, and then, um, yeah. And then, well, I mean, basically for the four years after that, it was kind of a roller coaster of, of, uh, moves and trying to figure out what medications I needed to be on and how, how to, how to get myself to a place that I could, um, stay and live. <laughs> you could be with yourself, be comfortable in your own skin. Uh, well, and not be cycling. I mean, it became pretty clear to me very, very early on, very early on that, um, that I, that I needed, that I needed to be more even keeled, that I needed to be stable. It was just a matter of how and how seemed, um, just beyond reach or well beyond reach for, for a number of years then. I think it's um, fair to share with our listeners that you have a degree in psychology. So you had the book knowledge uh, of what was going on with you. And then through the diagnosis, you had to figure out really what to do in the real world with it, how, how to help yourself, how to self-manage. And, I, you know, the biggest concern for a creative person is, oh, my God, what will happen to my creativity, to my livelihood, to the way that I am in the world? And I would assume that that was a big part of the journey that ensued. Well, sure. Well, I mean, regarding the first part of that, I, I you know, my degree in psychology, I'd worked I'd worked on a psychiatric, a short-term involuntary psychiatric unit. I'd worked with a couple of bipolar patients, actually, even, but I didn't apply that to me. Um, I mean, turning the turning the spotlight around on yourself is very different from examining someone else. So when I had my just before my thirtieth birthday appointment with the doctor, who who told me that I was bipolar, and 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 I said, well, you know, meh, not really, maybe kind of, but not really. And she took the the DSM off the shelf, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we've most of us have heard of at this point because it's been so in the news because of the latest version. Um, and we went through the symptoms, and that that was a that was a familiar book to me that was something that that i that i respected and that turning that around to me was was very very different from using that to as a as a filter to look at other people so so yeah one of the one of the first reactions that i had um getting the diagnosis and having worked with 
patients before is that I, I, I didn't want to go on meds. I had, I had seen what meds did to people at least when they see, I didn't realize that at the time I had, it was a short term unit. So I had really only seen them get conked over the head with the medications that they were on. And then they kind of went off uh, elsewhere for the rest of their treatment. I was terrified what, what it might, what it might do to my art even just to be stable, mm. even, even not flattened on medications, but just what, if I didn't, if I didn't have those swings of passion and, you know, like and floating and crashing and wasn't that a part of my creativity. So I was, I was terrified that that would be, that that was the source. That was the source for me. So I, but I had to let that go. I let yeah. that go really. I let that go. To be honest, I let that go at least I let go of clinging to that pretty quickly when I slipped down into a really, really deep depression, because at that point, my priority was to just not be in that pit there. I just would, would not live, be able to live down there. And certainly I wasn't being, I wasn't creative down there either. It was, you know, like I, I, Oh, I've already lost it. Okay. Let me see if I can get it back in some other way. Mm. And the interesting thing is there are so many creative geniuses in the world, you know, living and that have passed and, and that have, have, have been challenged by mood disorders, artists, writers, mm-hmm. a, a, including Vincent Van Gogh, George mm-hmm. O'Keefe, William Styron, Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. John Cheever is another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, the list goes on and on. <laughs> a, a, the, the list goes on and on. And the, then the, the golden question becomes, is there a corollary between this creative genius and then this other side of, you know, I don't like putting the labels or the diagnostic codes on it, but the symptoms of bipolar, you know, the highs, the lows, the, the, the roller coasters that appear in these people's lives. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of studies that show a correlation, not, not causality, but that show that show a correlation. I mean, you know, it's disputed just like everything, I suppose. I, I, I believe it seems, it seems to be, but there are, I mean, there are so many unknowns in that too. Like it's, it's, uh, it's true that an artistic lifestyle has a tendency to be stressful and sleep is irregular and, you know, the stress of not much money for most artists and all of these different things that go into making, making, um, m- making any sort of illness, really not just a mental illness, but worse or, or bring it out where, where it might have just been something something kind of, um, latent. Um, so there's, there's that. And then also artists really can talk about it more than people who are in much, you know, more professional professions, um, that, that, that don't have the, that kind of, that don't have that kind of preconception that artists are crazy anyway. Like we don't have a preconception that lawyers are crazy anyway, and surgeons are crazy anyway, and politicians are crazy anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, I know what you mean firsthand because I was married uh, mm-hmm. for many, many years to my husband who had mm-hmm. bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. and so oh. I, 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 you know, I have been on that roller coaster, mm-hmm. and it is, uh, it was a fascinating 
journey, and it is probably what brought me to study psychology midlife because I wanted to understand, you know, like I wanted to understand this beautiful mind. Mm-hmm. And um, what I witnessed was this insanely creative person who was in the, the business world. He was in uh, real estate development, commercial real estate development. He had studied mm-hmm. to be a lawyer when he was younger, and he was creative in his own way, but that creativity was uh, compounded by these wild highs, you know, right. and these really insanely scary lows. Right, right, right. Yeah. And. And, and, and for the partner, it's like, oh, honey, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> you <Right>. not- <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's really not sustainable, you know, to be, to, to have so, to have mood swings like that. And they get un- untreated, they get more and more acute and, um, and eventually they're, things, the rest of things in your life fall apart. Everybody's story is different. Um, I don't know, you know, like, obviously I don't know your husband's story, but that's, I mean, it's why the suicide rate is so high and people who are bipolar and particularly untreated bipolars, because it's just, it's really, 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 really hard. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your, um, your, your work relations and social relations. And, and for a lot of people, I I know for me, so even so far as creativity went being in the middle of a swing, even, or even a manic swing, I was way too distractible to really be very creative. I, I would, I would say that as somebody whose profession is creativity, it sounds like, like his in a lot of ways was too. Um, sometimes it means extreme creativity, but a lot of times it means either too distractible or too down. Yes. And the, and the balance becomes, and the challenge, not first the challenge and then the balance is how do you begin to self-regulate? You know, what are the steps that you take that are inclusive of medication? But I I believe include a whole host of other things, which I know you've got um, a, a, a practice that involves um, swimming, doing yoga, fixing things with rubber bands and paper clips, you know, things like that. I mean, and I say it facetiously, but it's a truth. I mean, you have a protocol that helps you be your best. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the key things and one of the main things for me, though, was about um, my identity and figuring out who, who, who I am, who I need to, who, what my priorities were. I had to change my attitude about, about being, what, what, what being an artist meant that, that I needed to learn how to value stability. I hated it. I didn't, I I did. It sounded boring to me and it was actually taking yoga that allowed me to, uh, to, to, to even just value that essential set. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Ellen Forney, who is a cartoonist and an author, and we're talking about the masks of mental illness, the the shadow sides of our nature, and we're probably going to get into what she's going to be for Halloween when we come back to because I'm, I'm, I'm immensely interested this week. I'm looking at a picture over here. Anyway, to learn more, please visit ellenforney.com. On Facebook, ellen.forney.cartoonist. And on Twitter, ellen underscore 
Forney. Here come those tunes, and we will be right back with our ghoulishly interesting show today. (laughs) Here come those tunes, and please share, because sharing is caring. So share this podcast with your friends and loved ones and people that you want to get the word out that normal is highly overrated. Here come those tunes. (laughs) We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back. We are talking with cartoonist... Ellen Forney, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo, and Me, which is a darkly funny, intensely personal, and visually dynamic graphic memoir of Forney's mood disorders and, and and her coming out with having bipolar disorder. Ellen, prior to the break, we were talking about, you know, the, this process of coming out, how it affected uh, your diagnosis and treatment affected your creativity. And I'd love for you to, you know, elaborate a little bit more on what that was like for you to come out and to share what you were going through. Well, you know, the coming out part, like the really broadly big coming out, really wasn't until the book either was about to come out or it came out. The book, which was in, uh, it came out in 2012. I was diagnosed in 1998. 
So it was a long time between my diagnosis, my, my rocky road to stability, and then a long time of stability where, um, before I really felt like, okay, I, I think that I'm, I think that I'm past the worst of this enough and that I know how to handle it enough that I'm not going to cycle and be completely vulnerable in front of like the world, the world naked in front of the world. Um, if I, if I, if I come out and everybody will know, everybody will know, uh, like if I, what's going on. So it took me a really long time to be out in a more public way. Um, my, my friends, my close friends knew, and if it came, if it came up in certain kind of more private situations, I would, I would, you know, like maybe talk about it with a new friend or something, but I really didn't talk about it much. Certainly wasn't what I would consider out about it. Even when I was in the middle of doing the book, um, Ellen, what are you working on? And it was like the big thing I was working on. Well, I'm working on a, you know, my first graphic novel, uh, really, what's it about? You know, that's the obvious question that someone would ask a caring person. What's it about? And I would say, well, you know, I'm not really talking about it. You know, it's just sort of like the artist incubation period. And it was the artist incubation period until pretty much more or less until I turned in the finals. And I realized, yes. okay, this this book is going to be out in the public in less than a year. I had better get used to talking about it. And it just, it made me, it made me really, it was, it, it, it was, it was still really pretty terrifying. I, I had, I had really kind of like buckled my seatbelt and, you know, it's okay. I'm opening myself to vulnerability and vulnerability is strength and it's going to be okay. And I'm doing this, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to help someone with this. I know it. I have told my story the best I can. I have done the best I can do. And I really did. (laughs) If I was going to be exposing myself in that way, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do as good a job as possible for me that the best that Ellen Forney would be able to do. And, um, and I was satisfied that I had done that, that I had done all that I could and that I just needed to, that I just needed to be excited and anxious. And that was all fine and just wait. And that, and that, yeah. And I was going to say, as you did, you know, when the book came out or when you started being more revealing to those around you, you know, before the book was published, just before, was there this sense of removing a mask that you might have held or was it more subtle than that? Well, I don't know if I would call it a mask exactly. I mean, I think that whenever you kind of like come out with something that had been very uh, secret, whether it, whether it, you know, something, something just like private, whether you're, whether you're kind of ashamed of it or not. I don't, I don't know that I would say I was, that I was ashamed of being bipolar. Just, I didn't, I just, I didn't want to deal with the assumptions that other people would make. Uh, and, um, so like, I, I think, I think most of us have had 
the experience of telling someone a secret that you think is so awful, you know, like I ate whatever. I ate a whole pint of ice cream by myself the other night or, uh, which I did not do. <laughs> it's not one of my things, but you know, like we all have like a thing or, you know, like I did this, you know, like I did this thing that I find embarrassing and, and you tell someone and they're like, Oh yeah, I do that too. Or, or, or even like, really? Wow. Or, or ew, but you've, but you know, like, ha ha ha, that it's not that more often than not, it's not that big a deal. And also that very often that's a shared experience. I think that, that, that other, that example that I just gave of, of, um, eating disorders is something that a lot of women keep private, but then sharing is, is it, it just, it just kind of like blows a lot of assumptions about the self and about shame out of the water. So what I found in my own case was I would talk about it. Let's say, let's say finally, you know, like a friend, well, what's it about? And I'd be like, well, it's about my bipolar disorder. I actually had a longer speech than that is my, about my bipolar disorder and about artists and writers through the, through history that had mood disorders and studies that correlate mood disorders and creativity. I had all this stuff to, uh, to couch that in. It's not just my story. It's a lot of stories. And more often than not, we would wind up talking about that other person and their experience because either they, I, this was the thing that blew me away is that, is that almost everyone had that experience, either themselves or someone close to them. Like you case in point, you're, 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 what did you say? Was been, has been my husband, was been. <laughs> my husband, <laughs> right? Like practically because, because statistically, even, even just mood disorders, I don't know. I don't know the statistic for mental illness in general, but mood disorders, just bipolar disorder and, and depression affects about 10% of the U S population. That means if you know 10 people, then you probably know someone with a mental illness or, 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 or you have one, you know? So it means that, um, that my coming out has meant just not just giving other people company, which had been my, my intent and my expectation that even if they were hidden, I could give them company, but that I got so much company back. And I think that is the beauty of truth, whether it's truth about, you know, mental health or just truth in general. We realize that when we share what we might be a little bit ashamed of or, or fearful of and then realize that, you know, there are other people in the room who are experiencing the same thing or know somebody who have experienced the same thing, we tend to be less isolated. And it actually removes some of that shame because we've put shined light on it. Right, 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 right. Certainly so far as having a mental disorder goes, it's been, it's been just, it's, it just, it's blown me away. My, if, if I had known, I don't know, uh, four years ago that, that I, that I would be talking about my own disorder. So, so candidly that, um, that when somebody asked me what my book was, stranger on the plane, you know, we're talking, you're cartoonist. Yeah. Oh, you know, like, oh, wow, you're a cartoonist. Yeah. I put out this book recently. What it's, what's it about? And to just say, well, it's actually, it's a memoir. It's about my bipolar disorder. And to just know that likely I'm just going to talk with this 
person about it and maybe about their experience with it. This was just actually just a recent experience. And the guy started talking about the meds that he was on for anxiety. I mean, it's just, it's such a common experience that, that it, 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 it almost seems like, how did I not know this before? How did I think that I had such a big secret when, when it, it's so, so common. We keep, we keep that, we keep that so private. I I don't want to say that it's always inappropriate to keep, to keep private things private. We don't always talk about our health problems. We don't always want to talk about them. We don't always want to hear about them. It's not appropriate in a a number of different contexts. I'm not saying that we should, you know, just like tattoo it on our forehead, but, um, uh, but knowing that it's a shared experience, knowing that it's not something that, uh, need, that you need to feel a lot of shame around, um, knowing that it's normal, you know, yeah, that you feel so, you feel so different, but that it's really pretty normal. Well, I think in the context of sitting on an airplane next to a, a stranger, you know, the airplanes, some, sometimes they become the truth chamber. You know, it's like, oh, what do you have to lose? <laughs> by, by talking to this person you're never going to see again, and you have those intimate discussions that you might not normally be open to have. And I think that is the beauty of, you know, turning the lights on and making a commitment to just, you know, just showing up. You know, whatever it looks like being truthful. And that is a, that's a byproduct of, of courage, of, of, um, meeting the challenges that are placed in front of us as, as you have and, and owning it. It's like, all right, what the hell? Uh It is what it is. (laughs) You know? Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And there is a, I think there's a, a joy in that. Sure. Yeah. Well, anything that, anything that relieves you of, a, a weight like uh, fear <laughs> uh, will allow more joy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to ask you a very important question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you going to be for Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> well, can I give the context of my of my costume last year? Because this one is a little bit of a reaction to. Yes, because I'm looking at that in a way. Right now. Yeah. yeah, we don't have much time. Yeah. So the, 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 oh. the short version, because this is very funny. I, this photo, I wish we could, you know, I wish the listener could okay. see it. But so yes, send that. Okay. Up. So so uh, so both this year and and last year were um, uh, were um, couples. Uh, my my boyfriend, who is a little tall, a bunch taller than me, and me. And last year, we were uh, trick or treaters that had homemade. Had, like maybe we were like around nine years old, uh, and uh, his name was Keith, and I was Jenny. And this is all backstory that we knew. I was dressed as Raggedy Ann. He was Batman, and we had little pumpkins. And he was getting all the chocolate, and I was just getting like the Smarties and the sweet tarts, and he wouldn't share his chocolate with me. And so we were tussling over it, and I bit his hand off. And so we had to go to the emergency room. And um, sure enough, my hand was in his. And so what we were wearing was these costumes. I had 
blood pouring down the front of my raggedy Ellen, hand. Yeah. We are out of time and we oh, are no. we're going to send the listeners to ellenforney.com or on Facebook ellen.forney.cartoonist or Twitter ellen_forney because my guess is you're going to have something up there related to your Halloween experience from last year in this year. And I want to thank you and our guests today for being with us and wishing everyone kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And be safe out there as you trick-or-treat. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Know the changes don't come easy. Nobody got no time anyway. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available on iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at HH Talk Radio and at Lisa Kamen. Then join us again next week at this same time on toginet.com.